0: Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray,
1: Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here with a,
0: a special guest, Brett McCracken, who is a former colleague here at Biola University. Uh, worked in a he wore, let's just say he wore a number of hats. In the, in the communications area at Biola University, very close to the president's office, uh, and now is the senior editor and director of communications for the Gospel Coalition, which is a terrific uh, web website that has all sorts of terrific multimedia content available. Brett is the one who basically does the editing and curating of that content and actually authors a good bit of it himself uh, when he runs out of things to do. So uh, he's got a brand new book out that we are delighted to be able to feature. It's one of the most insightful works that I've come across in a really long time. So it's called The Wisdom Pyramid. So we want to alert our listeners to this new book. Brett's going to tell us a little bit about that. So Brett, so good to have you with us. Uh, thanks so much for coming on with us. Yeah, thank you, Scott and Sean. Great to be with you. Tell tell us a little bit. I mean, you've, done, you've written on a whole host of subjects yeah. uh, that ranged from you know biblical studies to theology to culture and apologetics mm-hmm. uh, why did you set out to write this particular book
2: yeah um there, there could be a long answer to this question or a short one so I'll try to do the short one basically I think there's three kind of catalysts for for me writing this book one um, working in the digital space as a, like a, an editor of a website I spent all of my all day every day basically on the internet and I'm in that ecosystem, and I'm on social media for my job. And while, while there's great things about it, and you know, of course, the Gospel Coalition, my employer, wouldn't exist <laughs> were it not for the internet. So there are some good things about it. But I think I've had a front row seat to the, the underbelly of it and the downsides of it and kind of the toxic dynamics of the internet. So I think that's one, just observing that over the last couple of years and seeing how the internet is making us crazy, right? <laughs> Just seeing that firsthand, seeing people in my life. Um, and, and I think that leads to the second reason. I, so I'm an elder in a local church here in Southern California. And I so I, I ha, I'm wearing like a pastoral hat a little bit as I'm writing this book because I see within my own um, church flock, I see the, the formative power of the internet. And how insidious it is in today's digital age for actually capturing hearts and minds uh, in more potent and powerful ways sometimes than even the, the church and the Bible capture people and form people. So just kind of watching how that is happening as we speak, how church-going Christians are being more powerfully formed by their diets online and on social media, by their intakes, that... The, whatever formation they might be getting, uh, you know, on Sunday at church or in their, in their Christian community is, is no match for the, the steady influx mm-hmm. of content forming them.
1: Some of the fascinating material in your book is how you diagnose our cultural moment. So before we get to some suggestions of how to, how to fix it, what trends are you seeing right now that really
2: get your attention that concern you? So in the book, I I highlight three kind of um, dynamics of the digital age that I think are particularly harmful, and each of them has a corollary with eating. So we can talk about this more later, but the whole book concept is kind of like playing off of the food pyramid in terms of a healthy diet of physical food makes you physically healthy, and I'm saying a healthy diet or makeup of ideas, intakes, voices Helps you to be spiritually healthy or or wise. So the problems that I'm seeing, you know, each of them has a parallel with eating. So the problems I talk about are too much information, information gluttony. Um, so just like eating too much food makes you sick, I think the inundated, overwhelming abundance of information at our fingertips is actually making us sick. Um, we're gorging on it. We're binging on it. We're going back to the buffet, so to speak, of Twitter. More than we should, and it's all junk food for the most part. So that's one problem that I'm seeing. The too much information. The second one I talk about is the too fast. The the speed. Um, the the um, the speed of the digital age is not conducive to wisdom. Let's just say that. <laughs> There's a lot more we could say about that, but we move too fast to be prudent. Both in what we consume and kind of how we filter information is that. Really, a good source? To, should I trust that source? Should I, you know? Uh, we and we spread information and we say things uh, in the internet age way too fast. That isn't good for our wisdom. So the too much problem, the too fast problem, and then the third one I talk about is the too focused on me problem. Hmm. The the kind of inward self focused orientation, which the internet didn't create that. That was already a problem in our culture. This look within yourself dynamic. But I think the internet in its very structure actually adds a new layer to this because now algorithms can literally like feed you what you want and build an entire reality <laughs> around you as an individual. So if we were already kind of prone to narcissism and, and wanting to kind of define reality on our own terms, the, the fact is the internet now lets you do that um, in scary ways. Yeah, So that's those are three of many problems I could talk about, but those are the three that I see as the most um, deadly in terms of making us sick and unwise.
0: So too too much, too fast, too focused on me. Yep. You know, Sean and I can both remember what it was like before before the internet, before the digital age. I, I can too. You, like you can I'm a too. geriatric
2: millennial. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm an old millennial. <laughs> that's, a,
0: that's a term I haven't heard before. It's a real term. Um, it's on
2: my Twitter bio. You
0: know, my kids...
2: Yeah, you know, can't they really can't
0: remember. remember what it was like without the internet in their lives. Right, and that's I mean, Sean, your kids are younger, younger than mine, uh, and I'm sure that's even more, more so the case for them. Totally. Uh, so how how do millennials, Gen Z, mm-hmm. you know, the gener, you know, the the generation who's you know in yeah. their teens, twenties, and so, how do they generally respond? To this, because you're—I mean, you're awfully—you're awfully tough on social media. Yeah, I think justifiably so. Yeah, but how do they? Do they tend to roll their eyes and say, "Yeah, that's just—that's an old guy talking," or yeah. do they? D- d- does it resonate with them?
2: Yeah, you know, I—I th- I think the most common response that I've gotten from that generation is—is is just kind of nodding along and saying, like, "Yeah, you know, he's right," and I know it, but. I'm still gonna pull out my phone right now and just start scrolling because it's it's so ingrained and it's such a part of life it's like oxygen right like Wi-Fi is the oxygen for digital mm-hmm. natives like and so it's just such a part of life so I think there is a recognition in in our culture right now like I think a lot of young people gen Z who have grown up in this environment um, are, are sensing that something is is not right something is not working out for me I mean, Mental illness is on the rise, depression, suicide. Just in the last week, I've heard of, like, three people in Gen Z in my kind of extended circles who committed suicide. Gosh. And I think it's – these. this is the product. These are some of the bad, you know, outcomes. And there's been books about this. Um, A book by Jean Twinge called iGen is a really good – she basically goes through all the data about mental health and how it's – it actually, like – On every measure, like depression, anxiety, et cetera, it was already going up among younger generations. But like when the iPhone, (laughs) the year the iPhone was released, like suddenly it like skyrockets. So she's making the argument, as I would concur, that there's something about this digital ecosystem and particularly the smartphone and and social media that is not making us healthy. And I, I do sense that people recognize that. And younger people are at a place where they're yeah, f- trying to figure out healthier habits and, and ways to be more moderate in, in how they yeah. use this. And That's what this book is kind of about. It's, I'm not saying throw away your phones. The internet is never something you should go on. It's on the Wisdom Pyramid, and we can talk about that more, but um, I, I think we just have to be so careful. With, yeah, I think
0: it's helpful for our listeners yeah. to know. It's, it's, yeah. it's also at the very top. I mean, not of, meaning the most pyramid, important, Which, yeah. but let me clarify. Not, but, not,
2: not foundational. <laughs> not foundational, but it is, it's in the dessert category, so it's there.
1: I think what a lot of people miss is you're not just concerned with what's on the internet, yeah. things like pornography or right. the content or false ideas that can capture young people. It's the medium itself that yes. concerns you. Yes. What is it about the yeah. medium on top of the message mm-hmm. that concerns mm-hmm. you? And you have concern of one over the other, or is it just is it both
2: Yeah, I think I think those three problems I talked about are all kind of more media me, the medium is the problem, right? Yeah. It's it's the too much inundation of it's it's the the fact that we have at our fingertips access to literally the entire accumulated knowledge of humankind since the <laughs> dawn of time. Like, amazing. <laughs> it's at our fingertips and while that sounds cool, I think in reality it's it's terrible for our epistemology for one thing like Mm. you know there is such a thing as too much of a good thing and so i think it's it's dynamics like that it's the speed that i talked about like digital media is just by nature it's prone to want to go fast right it's all about conquering the the old um challenges of space and time and you know being able to download things at ever faster speeds and so that just it it conditions us to want to move faster and think faster and speak faster. And I don't think that thinking and speaking fast, it rarely ends in wisdom, I find. So, Mm. yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's, maybe not an accident that the Bible says, be quick to listen, not not quick to speak.
2: We do the opposite on the internet a lot of times.
0: Now you you you're also you're, you're especially critical of the too focused on me yeah the the autonomy mm-hmm. culture uh, I love the way you you describe it. you call it the look within mm-hmm. culture instead of looking to other things external to yourself transcendent yeah. sources yes. but at the end of the day
2: yeah.
0: what what really is the problem with being true to yourself mm-hmm. with I mean I, I I I mean I think a lot of looking within is actually really healthy reflective yeah types of things. So where what's the balance there?
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not saying every form of looking within is wrong. I think, you know, introspection and that can be good, self-reflection. It's just the look w- looking within yourself as a source of wisdom is the problem. Like as the mm. source of like truth and guidance for the good life. That's where we go wrong. For a lot of reasons. I mean, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. So <laughs> following your heart often leads us astray. Um and then also just the the logic of it doesn't add up because if one person's look within truth says this and another person's look within truth says the opposite, then they both can't be true, right? Like cuz when the rubber meets the road, um you know, in in the real world, <laughs> there has to be a truth outside of us that is the ultimate arbiter of how a society functions. One just simple example I use is like um, red lights and green lights, like traffic laws. Like if I were to declare one day that my truth is that red means go and and another person says, no, my truth is green means go, then it would cause chaos. God help. Like for, for the for the world to not be chaotic there has to be something external to our inclinations and our preferences that we, we all have to submit ourselves to so i think the logic of it just breaks down
1: can you talk about the body person dualism that you describe mm-hmm. and how you see you you think this is kind of exemplified in the lgbtq movement mm-hmm. but also kind of how the creators of the matrix film franchise mm-hmm. fit in with this idea as
2: well yeah. Um, yeah, That's there's a lot in that question. So something that I think the the Internet age and this kind of largely online life that we now live has led to is it's made more plausible, this dualism, hmm. right? If you live most of your life in this ethereal, abstract space of the Internet where your avatar is really who you are and you don't really know anyone you're interacting with in a bodily way, then I think it becomes more salient, this idea that I am an abstract, ethereal person. And there is no necessary connection to my physical reality, my bodily reality, or anything in the physical world. So this kind of virtual reality world that we live in, I think, is one of the big reasons why, like, transgenderism as an idea has become more plausible, Mm. I think there were other things going on philosophically in our culture, you know, going way back to the Enlightenment, (laughs) Rousseau, et cetera. But I do think the digital age has really amplified this dualistic kind of Gnostic um, disconnect between physical reality and virtual personhood. And yeah, The Matrix, it was an offhand comment in the book, but um, I just find it interesting that The Matrix, which was kind of like a prophetic – Early in the internet age, movie that was kind of um, depicting this very idea of like we we live a reality a virtual reality that is separate from our physical reality and that maybe that's actually preferable and maybe maybe that that's who we are that's who we really are right and I think it's interesting that the ma- the filmmakers of the f- that film the Matrix. Um, they were the Wachowski brothers, but both of them are now transgender women. So, yeah. so th- they themselves—I don't know if it's a chicken or egg thing. Like, I don't know if they were already on that trajectory sure. before they made The Matrix, and The Matrix is just mm. an expression of that kind of ideology, or or maybe it was something that after—I don't know. But it's interesting. It's an interesting thing to me.
0: So, Brett, let's. When we've, I think we've we've gotten a really helpful diagnosis here that that I think that I think is pretty compelling. So what what are the various components of your wisdom pyramid? Mm-hmm. And I, I love the analogy to the food to the food pyramid mm-hmm. uh, for a you know a healthy diet yeah. that, that 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 points us toward wisdom. So what what are the kind of the, the building blocks on the wisdom pyramid?
2: Yeah. So I'll try to be quick with this. Um, the whole second half of the book goes into each of. But we're the going to sections. talk about some of the. Okay. We're going to talk
0: about some of the details. Yeah,
2: well, basically, with the parallel with the food pyramid, from the bottom up, as with the food pyramid, same with the wisdom pyramid, it goes from the most important, most foundational for our wisdom, to kind of the least important, potentially unhealthy at the top. So, at the bottom, of course, is the Bible, um, God's word, His direct, special revelation, has to be the foundation of our wisdom. Um, the second level up is the church. Um, this is God's people, his community. Um, so one of the kind of, um, one of the ways I like thought through structuring it was the idea that like wisdom is from God, it's defined by God. It's, so I oriented the pyramid such that it goes from most proximity to God at the bottom, and then gradually less and less proximity. So I would argue the church is the second most foundational source of wisdom because it's the second most Proximate proximity we have to God. It's his very presence among his people. He's shaping them, growing them. We're learning scripture together. Um, and then the third level up, and people often are surprised by this, is nature. And my argument there is going on the logic of most proximate to God to least. Um, nature is the third most important category for wisdom because it's God's direct, it's his direct creation, right? There's no There's no other creator of nature. It's his general revelation, right? That script Christian tradition has these categories of special revelation with the Bible and general revelation with uh, nature, creation. It's it's the two books idea um, the book of nature and the book of the Bible. So nature is an important part of um, our wisdom diet. And I think, especially in the digital age when we're we're prone to, you know, spend all day, every day looking at screens and being mediated by digital technology, we can become more and more disconnected from God's design in nature. And this connects to the transgenderism thing and that whole like virtual reality, Gnosticism, all of that. Uh, Anyway, we could talk forever about that. So let me just move on quickly. Um, So after nature, there's books as a category that's important for us. um, And then beauty, um, kind of the importance of art and beauty for for our wisdom. And then finally at the top is where I put the internet and social media. So it's there, but least important. Do
1: you have any sense of what Christians maybe struggle with the most on that pyramid? Mm-hmm. Is it interpreting scripture through this autonomous self? Yeah. Is it not valuing church? If you had to kind of categorize yeah, where you yeah. think the bigger
2: challenges are, what, yeah. what might you suggest? Yeah, I mean, I think... I would probably say the the bottom the bottom categories, Bible, church, because those are the most foundational and the most essential for our wisdom, I think that is the one that worries me the most mm. in terms of biblical literacy being so low among even like church going Christians, even Biola students like um <laughs> the cream of the crop, uh don't know the Bible well. And that's a problem because Everything else in terms of wisdom follows from uh, rightly handling the word of God and having a grasp of what His truth is in Scripture. So, I, yeah, I would say that that's one that Christians just struggle with um, increasingly. And we can, yeah, that's a whole another conversation. But there's lots of ways that our culture is undermining the Bible's legitimacy, and um, so it's an even bigger challenge today than. Than it has been, and then the church. You know, we can, we can maybe talk about that as a separate thing. But church going is, um, you know, I think in America we we hit uh, under fifty percent for the first time in terms of the oh, uh, the wow. number of Americans who go to weekly religious services. So church going is on the decline, and um, I don't think that's I don't think that bodes well for our wisdom.
0: Hmm. You know, Brett, I know that uh, increasingly among. Gen Z, millennials, uh, there's there's a separation between fo- following Jesus faithfully and the necessity of attending a church. Right, and you know it's become much more popular to say I can follow Jesus, but I don't need to go to church. Yeah, what what does church provide for someone that you can't get anywhere else?
2: Hmm. Yeah, man, I have so much to say about this. My <laughs> my whole book, Uncomfortable, my my last book was all about this because I do think there's the logic of our consumeristic age is never choose something willingly that's uncomfortable or that has a social cost or that has baggage or that is, you know, awkward. And the church is all of those things. There's at the same at the same time. At the same time there's a thousand reasons why you would choose not to go to church. And 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 I so I think it's it, you do have to make a case for for what what is the value. So in in the wisdom pyramid in the chapter on church um, i talk a lot about the the way that the church functions as a a challenge and a buffer against that look within individualism so if that's a central problem that's making us sick is this tendency to always just default to my own wisdom follow my own heart do whatever you know seems right in my own eyes like the church and the community of christians that you kind of submit to Doing life with and growing alongside in a church is a beautiful God-given check and balance against our wayward uh, individualism, right? So that and everything from like biblical interpretation, where if we're going, if we're a lone wolf with the Bible, that can be treacherous because we we tend to read it through the lenses that you know, we have. But in a, in a Christian community, assuming it's a fairly diverse community with a lot of different perspectives and backgrounds, I think we can better get at the truth of, of Scripture and what God has for us in Scripture together than we do individualistically. So that's a big one. I also think just the, the, the fact is church is a place where we go to orient our whole selves, not just our minds, but our bodies, in worship and singing and praying, it's an experience of orienting yourself around God and and not yourself, right? You are not the star of the show at church. God is. And I think that right there is such a key to wisdom. Mm-hmm. Living a God, a radically God-centered life is, is in one sentence what wisdom is, I would say. It's living a radically God-centered life. And the flip side is true. Living a radically me-centered life is you know, you're fast track to foolishness. And I think church is one of the last great <laughs> outposts um, mm. in our culture where we go somewhere and we actually aren't the center of attention. Everything on our smartphone puts us at the center of attention. Everything on the internet is about you, YouTube, you know, me, MySpace, Facebook. You know, it's all about me, 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 me. Go to church. It's about God. <laughs> so that's the, the, here, that's here. my... Ex- basic argument for why Gen Z needs to prioritize church.
0: Yeah.
1: So I got to point out just for our listeners, the way you're saying it's not so much the content of a worship song or the content of a sermon, as important as that is, but the practice of being a part of something bigger than themselves where it's not about them, independent of the quality of the sermon, has value in
2: going to church regularly with kids. Totally, totally. Because the thing is like, you can find content, with a quick Google search online, right? If mm. if church is really just about a good sermon and good worship songs, like go to Spotify for that, right? Go to mm. Tim Keller's like sermon archives. Y- your, your local pastor probably can't do better than Tim Keller yeah. or any any number of great pastors who are just a Google search away. So church is so much more than just content. And I think in a, in our internet age though, we're so conditioned to think of everything in terms of content that we consume. That we can start to think of church that way and i just think that's a really bad unhealthy way to think about church
1: i think that's great that's one of the point that i often make to Parents about just regularly having meals it's mm. instills a sense of belonging, mm-hmm. identity. Stop what you are doing, commit yeah. to something Be like part just of something that, bigger
2: than yourself. Yeah, just yeah. that
1: ritual in itself. Mm. I think you captured sure. the church. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but your fourth tier is books. Yes, fourth tier. Now, yeah. when you say books, yeah. there's a lot of things that can fall in the category of books. Yeah. So, what kind of books are you talking about, and mm-hmm. what does
2: a book offer that a screen can't? Um, yeah, so I'm t- in with that chapter. I'm not just talking about like the content of books. Um, I'm also talking about the form of books that help help us in becoming wise. And this is to answer your question: What do books offer that that screens can't? I think that one of the problems of media on screens and on our phones is that it tends to cultivate a mile wide, inch deep sort of engagement where we just skim and we go from thing to thing to thing, and we never we never really wrestle with stuff. We never pause and linger. And our attention is just so hyperactive. We go from one thing to the next. And I think what's happening is we're losing the ability to have, you know, critical thinking and evaluative thinking. Um, we're los- those, those muscles are atrophying a little bit in the internet age. Reading books, I would say, is like basically like the CrossFit exercise to like, bulk bulk up those muscles of critical thinking. Mm. Like, There's nothing like reading a book and committing yourself to that long process of sitting and just letting one author and their perspective kind of reign for a week or a month, however long it takes you to read that book. There's so many good things about that. Not only does it kind of help cultivate that attention that we're lacking the ability to attend to one thing over a long period of time it also reminds us how to listen because reading a book is nothing if not being quick to listen and slow to speak in practice you're literally that's what you're doing when you're reading a book you're being quick to listen and you're not speaking you can't speak the author's not there to like for you to like yell out to them (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes I write in the margins of a book when I disagree. I'm like, "No!" exclamation mark. But that's the best I can do to have a conversation back to them. I'm there to listen and learn. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean that everything you l- read, you know, you should just take to the bank and like and agree with. And, and that's this is a big thing I talk about in the book's chapter of the wisdom pyramid is really like learning to read helps you to be educated and being educated is the ability to like entertain a thought without assenting to it. Right. Um, It was Aristotle or someone who said that like the the mark of an educated man is the ability to um, entertain arguments without assenting to them. So when we read, Christians should read widely. We should read books by people who we know we're not going to agree with completely. But we should read with critical eyes to see Mm. what is the truth here that I can glean by common grace? What can I learn from them? While at the same time recognizing that lots of things they argue are probably not true. And we need to be able to also, you know, (laughs) recognize that. So anyway, I think that's just a a lost art in in a lot of... um, just in our culture broadly, but in Christian culture, I think Christians can sometimes have a fearful posture. Like, I don't want to like read books that, I'm, that are by an atheist or that are by someone on the other side of an issue from me. And I just think for a lot of reasons, it's a healthy thing for our wisdom to to be willing to read those books without necessarily agreeing with everything in them.
0: I think that's that's especially true given the fact that so many social media outlets have algorithms that are designed to reinforce yeah. our, our, our existing views, yes. Yeah. And so we it, they select out those kinds of things that might offer, yep, you know, an alternative yep. that we that we would like to entertain, but not necessarily yep. assent to. Now, one notch below books, you have nature, mm-hmm. um, and you make a really interesting observation that uh, par- parts of our culture are totally committed to nature and biology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we love organic foods. We're yes. against we're against uh, genetically modified mm-hmm. organisms. Yes. Um, but yet, uh, you know, on the other on the other hand, when it comes to gender, mm-hmm. you know, all that all that goes out the window. Right. How how do you explain that? You know that tension that incoherence. Yeah. In our in our culture's view of nature. Yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's. It's just an example of a bigger problem with our culture has lost a self-awareness when it comes to inconsistencies. Like, spend, like, five minutes on the internet and you see all sorts of logical inconsistencies on display. So we just have a lot of this going on where we don't recognize (laughs) the inconsistencies. And, And with science, you know, and biology, just I've just found it so funny recently, the whole, like, follow the science, right? Certain people want to claim that mantle, like, we follow the science, right? And they're talking about things like climate change, maybe, or wearing masks or something, I don't know. But a lot of those same people, like, don't follow the science when it comes to, like, basic things about human biology, like your sex, you know, (laughs) like being male and female, Uh, So there's just a lot of picking and choosing which science you follow and for what purpose. And that's kind of what I was getting at with the organic uh, vegetables comment. Like some of the same people who are like, no, we should never genetically modify any vegetables. Like we need to embrace them in their purest form. Mother nature knows best. They're the same ones who have no problem whatsoever with like sex reassignment surgeries and mastectomies for transgender, you know, men so, I, I, yeah, I just think, like, as Christians, we need to be the ones who actually try to break out of those inconsistencies and say, like, God's creation and nature is what it is, regardless of our politics, regardless of our preferences, and it can be an opportunity for us to glorify him and worship him if we, if we accept the givenness of it and, and embrace, you know, the nature as he created it, not as uh, we wish it would be.
0: I love the way you put this. That if organic is best in strawberries and kale, it's also best in humans. Yeah, I, I, I had guess. fun so, writing so, some of those so, lines. So insightful. <laughs> well, Brett? One final question here. Beauty is also part of the wisdom pyramid. Mm, mm-hmm. I suspect a lot of people might not mm-hmm. m- might be a little surprised that something like that is there. Yeah. Uh, but you make a really good observation that God. You know, in in a lot of the scripture, God speaks not as a Theologian mm-hmm. or a philosopher, but as a poet, yeah. and I'd add to that, he speaks. I'd say he speaks primarily as a storyteller. Yes, uh, in that. But what does it? What does it mean for practically to give mm-hmm. attention to mm-hmm. beauty?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it means slowing down and um, viewing wisdom as something that's more than just cerebral. It's it's not just about how many facts can you cram into your brain. Like, God didn't create us as just brains on sticks, right? He created us mm-hmm. as full-bodied creatures with senses where we can taste and see that he is good, right? Not just know that he's good. Part of knowing his goodness is actually tasting and seeing it, as Psalm 34 says. So that's the level at which beauty can cultivate wisdom in us. When we, we actually, like, pause the kind of logical processes of filling our minds with facts and just sit still and attend to beauty, listening to it, looking, touching it, tasting it. So I think there can be a lot of wisdom in just sitting down and really savoring an amazing, you know, bite of ice cream or something like um, there can be a wisdom in sitting down and listening to a Bach, you know, symphony, um, even though there's no message, there's no words, there's nothing that appears to be coming into your brain in the form of like knowledge it's coming into your soul as wisdom and that's i think that's why beauty is so important
0: so maybe just in in summary here instead of too much too fast too focused on me
2: mm. what's the
0: opposite yeah. of those yes. just in a sentence
2: yeah, and this is where I end the book, is, is kind of def- defining what wisdom looks like in three traits that are kind of the opposites of those problems. So in a too much world, wisdom looks like discernment. It looks like being a little bit more choosy of what you listen to and what you attend to and, and, and avoiding the gluts uh, and being selective i think wisdom looks like being patient in a too fast world having the ability to like be quicker to listen and slower to speak and actually just being disciplined enough to um maybe reserve comment instead of jumping on facebook every time you have an opinion actually like sitting on that thinking it through um it almost always works out better (laughs) for you and for everyone when we're slower in 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 our discourse um, so being patient is, is a characteristic of wisdom. And then the third one is, in a world that's too focused on me, um, humility is a mark of wisdom. Recognizing and admitting that I don't have all the answers, and I'm, I'm not the best source of wisdom. I'm not the expert. Um, there's a lot of kind of I'm the expert going on in our culture right now. Everyone thinks they're an expert on epidemiology or politics or name your like super complex public policy issue. Everyone's an expert, right? And humility would say, "I'm not an expert. I actually don't know the right answer, but I'm committed to finding the truth by listening to others, by talking with others, um, and by being patient and, and pursuing wisdom uh, over the long haul, and being okay with not having easy, instant answers, which is which is hard to do in well, today's
0: it, world." This is uh, I so appreciate that summary. That's so insightful, and I. To our listeners, we've just barely scratched the surface of what's in this book. This is just one of the most insightful books that I've read in a really long time, and I want to commend it to you, Brett McCracken, The Wisdom Pyramid. Uh, it's just great stuff. And so, Brett, we're so thankful for you coming on with us. All the best to your work at yeah. the Gospel Coalition. and We encourage our listeners to regularly visit the Gospel Coalition as part of the It's a part of the the way you manage your screen time, I would Mm -hmm. say make sure that the Gospel Coalition (laughs) is a
2: part of that. In that dessert category of your wisdom pyramid, a cookie could be the Gospel (laughs) Coalition.
0: Well, this has just been terrific. Thanks so much, Brett, for coming on with us. Thanks a lot. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically Podcast is brought to you by Tablet School of Theology at Biola University offering programs in Southern California and online, including our master's program in Christian apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Brett McCracken about his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, feel free to give us a rating on your podcast app and please do share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening and remember, think biblically about everything.